We never saw it coming. We had just left Jerusalem. Our heads were hung low because all of our hopes had been dashed. You see, we thought that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the Messiah. And then he was crucified. And so we left the city and we were despondent. And as we journeyed, this man came to walk alongside us. And we were shocked to find out he did not know what happened in Jerusalem. And so we told him, and then you won't believe it. He called us slow of heart. He said that, that our scriptures had pointed that this would happen. They, they already told us that the Messiah would suffer and die. And then he began with Genesis and he started explaining how all of our scripture pointed. Genesis and Adam and Noah and Abraham. And then we kept going and Moses and Joshua and the tabernacle and the temple and the law and the prophets. All of it pointed to the Messiah suffering and dying for his people. And we enjoyed talking to him. So, I mean, he offended us, but we still enjoyed talking with him so much that we wanted him to stay for dinner. So we invited him, and as we were around the dinner table that night, the guest who had been with us that day, he took bread and he broke it. And when he broke the bread, something happened. It was like our eyes were opened, and we realized that he himself was Jesus, that we had been in the presence of the Messiah, and then he vanished. And we haven't been the same since, because Jesus is alive, but not only that, we were with him, and we think back, and we think about how our hearts burned within us as we walked with him, but more than that, we can't read our Bibles the same way. It's different, because now we see in a new way that all of it points to Jesus. Now, this is my own creative imagination, my own words explaining the real life experience of two men in Luke 24. And they're walking along the road, they're, they're leaving Jerusalem, and then Jesus comes and Jesus hasn't revealed himself to them yet. And then we read this in the 24th chapter of Luke, verse 27, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, who in the Hebrew mind, Moses was attributed with the first five books of the Bible. So beginning with the very beginning, Jesus explained to them how all of it, all the scriptures pointed to himself. Can you imagine what that was like? to be a fly on the wall, to, to walk alongside and listen as Jesus connected the dots. In a sense, that's what we're hoping to do. Today and over the coming weeks is walk alongside those men on that journey that day and, and learn more about how behind all the stories of the Bible, there's one bigger story, and it's about Jesus. And how all of those point to him, and he's the one who changes everything. And, and so as we do this as a church community over the coming weeks, here, here's what I hope for us. I hope two things. One, that our minds would be enlightened as we connect the dots between these Old Testament stories and the reality of Christ. So many of us, we're so used to these stories, our eyes kind of glaze over. But if Jesus is right, then they're about him. They're, they're all about him. And so we need to read our Bibles in that light 
and in that context. And the second thing I hope for us as we do this is that our hearts would be enlarged. That we would, as we behold the majesty of Jesus, that we'd be changed. Like the two men on the road that day, that our hearts would burn within us because Jesus is alive and he's better than any of us could ever imagine. So we're going to begin that journey today and we're starting at the very beginning. And if you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. That's where we're going to be, Genesis chapter 3. And if you want to go above and beyond, if you're an all-star student, you can go ahead, put your little ribbon thingy in Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in those two places today. And as you're turning there, I just want to acknowledge that one resource that was really helpful for me as I prepared for this was an excellent teaching on this topic from Halem Su. Halem Su. And the reason why I say that, you know, I always look at a variety of resources when I study, but when I lean into one in a really significant way, I just want to acknowledge that, and, he, and it was really helpful for me. Do you trust me? That's the question all throughout the Bible God is asking. Do you trust me? If you had to sum up what God is after in all the commands he gives his people to obey, in all of the things he asks his people to believe, I believe it would be that question. Do you trust me? And that's the question that God is asking us today, that God is asking you. Do you trust me? In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that exists. He made the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, every creature that moves. And then God, as the crown of creation, made mankind. And we learn about it in Genesis 1, verse 26, that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, what's unique about mankind in the created order is we are the only thing, the only ones who are created in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? That, that's been debated throughout the centuries. What does that mean exactly that we're made in the image of God? But the text, if you look at the text, two things are clear. That, that, it, being in the image of God at least means these two things. Number one, it means that like God, mankind has the unique ability and responsibility of ruling, of ruling. In this verse, God so let us make mankind in our image and our likeness that they may rule. Now that word for rule in Hebrew, it doesn't mean to lord over or to dominate. It means to care for. And we see that in the next chapter, Genesis 2. And God says, he puts them in the garden to care for it. But mankind uniquely has that ability and that responsibility to, to exercise authority and care for the created order. The second thing we see about the image of God in the text is that man uniquely has the capacity for moral decision-making. A lion does not contemplate, should I eat this prey or not? A bird does not contemplate, should I fly south for the winter? But, but human beings, we have the unique moral capacity to make judgments and decisions. And so we see that in the command that God gives. Look, look at this, this is in... Chapter 2, verse 16, God, he puts them in the garden, and then God says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now this command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this command is not primarily about obedience, but about trust. It's about trust. You say, why, Matt? Why, why is that command the perfect way to test whether or not these new human beings will trust God, because God does not give them a lot of explanation. He does not give them the why behind the command. All he tells them is don't eat of it, and he tells them if they do, the consequence will be certain. They will surely die. They don't know what death means yet. God does not go into the theology of the tree. God does not explain all the ramifications of death, all of the disease and disasters and sorrow and pain and misery. God doesn't do that. It's about trust. Would they trust him? How many of you have asked somebody to do something for you, and for whatever reason, you haven't given them an explanation? Maybe you don't have time. You're running out the door, and you say, please do this, and they say, why? And then you say, just trust me. Just trust me. Some of you parents do this with your kids frequently. And when you make a request like that, just trust me, you are eliminating all possible false motivations because it's rooted in trust. And if they obey you, it's because they trust you. And if they don't, it's because they do not trust. No, nobody abused this after the service and said to your friend, give me 20 bucks, I can't tell you why, just trust me, right? You know, Tim Keller, he points out that if God told Adam and Eve everything that would happen to him. If God said, let's have a movie night, and God played forward the movie of how Abel would eventually die, of the flood, of the countless disasters throughout human history, and said, all of this is going to happen if you eat from the tree. If God would have done that, then when the serpent came and tempted them, what would they have said? They would have said, no. But where would their obedience have been rooted not in trust, in cost-benefit analysis. You see, it would have been in their own wisdom, not in the wisdom of God. And so God, behind this prohibition he gives in the very beginning, is this desire for his people to trust him. And this is what God is always after. This is what God is after with you and with me. Halem Su, he says that God desires first and foremost not the obedience of the hands, but the trust of the heart. So God puts these people in the garden, and he gives them this command, and then the serpent comes to them, who we learn later in the Bible is Satan, the embodiment of spiritual evil. And the, the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this is not what God said. God said you can eat from any tree in the garden, every tree except for one. But the serpent is asking this question, is deliberately, deliberately positioning God in a specific way. You see, the, the serpent is painting a picture by the way he asked the question. And the picture is that God is withholding puts all of the focus not on what God has given, but on the one thing that God has restricted. And when he does that, he's whispering the lie, and this, we hear this lie today. 
And it's, it's this, it's if God is withholding anything from me, it's the same as withholding everything from me. If God's withholding anything, it's the same as him withholding everything. And we're familiar with this, aren't we? I mean, how many of you, you've prayed for something, maybe for years, and you've asked God to give it to you, and God has not? And you don't know why. But if you're honest, deep inside, you wonder, is God withholding from me? And there's a part of us, listen, that, that starts to think, you know, God, you've never given me anything. God, you've never blessed me. And we lose sight of all that God has given. So the serpent, he plants this lie, and he's about to water it, and we'll see that in a minute. But Eve, you know, she says, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Her recollection is off. God did not say you may not touch it. But the serpent hearing this, he, he goes for the kill. Look at what the serpent says. You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice, the serpent, when he comes, he does not come with a show of force. The serpent does not say, hey, Eve, you better take a bite of that fruit or I'm gonna bite you. You see these fangs? The serpent doesn't try to confuse her. No, you're mistaken. God said that about this other tree. You can eat from this one. <laughs> you know, what is the serpent doing? The serpent is trying to undermine her trust in God, this is so instructive for us. See, the, the serpent does not come at her with a weapon, but an idea. And what's the idea? The idea is, Eve, you're naive. God doesn't want what's best for you. In other words, you can't trust him. And if you want to get what's best for you, you have to take it for yourself. Now, why is the serpent focusing on that. Why this strategy? It's because the serpent knows, listen, if I can get her, if I can get them to not trust God, then countless acts of disobedience will follow and death and destruction. Sin, all sin at its core is about trust. Ignatius of Loyola he said this, he said that sin is unwillingness to trust that God, that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. That is so profound, that, that behind the greed, the envy, the infidelity, the manipulation of other people, the addiction to the substance or to pornography, the obsession with your image or how much money you have in your bank account, behind all of that, there's an unwillingness to trust that God really does want what's best for me. That his way, his wisdom is higher, it's better. And so what do we do? We redefine good and we take it for ourselves. You see, the, the question when we struggle, and we do, we, we struggle with sin. Here's the question. What in my heart is not trusting God. 
In other words, what about God am I not trusting? You see, the, the, the easy thing in some ways is to just try to fix the behavior. The deeper issue is trust. What about my heart right now is not trusting God? But sadly, we know, many of us, we know how the story plays out. The, the serpent whispers this lie, you can't trust God. How does she respond? Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her deadbeat husband, <laughs> who was with her, and he ate it. And when that happened, death entered into the fabric of God's good creation. God doesn't just punish them with death. You see, death is the natural consequence of sin, and it's not just physical death. I mean, who's the first person that the Bible records dying? It's not Adam. It's not Eve. It's their son. You see, as soon as they sinned, death began to weave its way into the world. Work becomes harder, marked by futility. Relationships become difficult, marked by manipulation. The creation itself begins to tear and groan. But most tragically, these human beings lost the presence of God. And we did too. And that is spiritual death. Now, how does that relate to us today? Well, Paul, he talks about the implications of Genesis 3 in Romans chapter 5. And this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. Now, we have to stop and notice two things. First... He says, death came to all people. That death, in a sense, it's the inheritance we get from our father, Adam. We're all in the line of Adam. You know, part of what you get from your parents is their likeness. It's easy to pick my kids out of a lineup because they look like me and they look like Katie too, but they got blonde hair and blue eyes. Those Norwegian genes are strong and they come through and they look a lot like me and listen, they didn't have a say, you know, they just, you get your father's likeness. You see, part of our inheritance from Adam is his likeness. And that likeness is sin, and it results in death. That's what Paul is saying. But he goes even further because not only did death come to all people, look at what he says. Paul says, because all sinned. Now, when we read all sinned, we tend to read that, that we have all on our own individually sinned. We've all done wrong, and that's true, but that is not what this text is saying. What this is saying is that when Adam and Eve sinned, you did too. And if you never make a wrong choice in your life, if you never do anything wrong, you are still guilty of sin. And as a result, you get the consequence, which is death. Now, immediately we object. We object mightily. We say, this is not fair. This is not fair that we would be punished, held accountable for Adam and Eve's sin. Well, two comments I want to make in response to that. First of all, our objection primarily comes out of our culture. We are all children of the Enlightenment Western European American worldview that is extremely individualistic. I mean, it's baked into our earliest documents. 
that we are all endowed with the right, the individual right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we, we cannot imagine being held accountable for the sins of someone else a thousand years, thousands of years before us in our family line. But again, that is coming out of an individualistic worldview. Greg Pinkner, he makes the observation that in other cultures, typically cultures that are not as legal-based as America, not as guilt-based, but more honor-based cultures, they don't have a problem with this. It makes perfect sense to them that in Asian and African cultures, and I'm speaking very generally, but, but typically in those places and in those cultures, this makes perfect sense. The hard part for them is understanding how one person can be saved and not the whole family. How an individual can be saved and not the whole family line. So our objection, it comes out of our culture. The second thing I would say is, if we could have it our own way, how would it work out? If we're mad that we're held accountable for Adam's sin, well, if we could stand or fall based on our own righteousness, because again, the result of sin is death, if we could stand or fall based on our own behavior, how would that work out? You know, Tim Keller, he makes the point that if the only standard of judgment used against us was not God's standard, it was not the standard of other people, it was just our own standard. If there was an invisible tape recorder hanging around your neck and, and the only standard that you were judged by is what you have said out loud is right or wrong. If that was the only standard, you would still be guilty. I would still be guilty. I mean, I'm really convicted because one of my kids recently, I, you know, you're always telling your kids, be kind, be kind to one another, be gentle. And last week, one of my kids said to me, Dad, why do you yell at us so much? And I'm, I was so convicted by that. Now, I don't, it's not like berating them, but I just, I'm in such a habit of like, kids, let's go, let's get out the door, and it's time, brush your teeth, and... Dad, why do you yell at us so much? I'm not being kind. You see, all of us have inconsistencies. We, we say one thing and we do another. If, if death results in sin and we stand or fall by our own righteousness, we're in trouble. And the standard is not what we say. It's not what you say. The standard is God himself. You see, part of the reason I think that we, we struggle with the seriousness of sin and with the concept of sin, just collectively, we, we just struggle with it. It's because of a, a failure to grasp the, the holiness of God, the glory of God. There's a 19th century theologian who said this. He said that the guilt of the offense, so think of any sin, the guilt of the offense is proportional to the greatness, the moral excellence, and the glory of him against whom the offense is committed. He's saying with, without a view of the holiness of God, we will never feel the weight of our sin. And, and, and human beings, all of us in this room and everybody you know, is incredibly valued and made in the image of God and has intrinsic goodness and worth. But what's also true is we're all deeply flawed and we are all broken and we cannot generate a solution to that. There is no solution. There's no public policy that's gonna fix that. There's no New Year's resolution. But the good news, here's the good news. 
is that thousands of years after the first Adam, there was another Adam that came. And like the first Adam, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, found himself in a garden, tempted to distrust God, just like the first Adam. But unlike the first Adam, who trusted or distrusted God when everything was good. I mean, think of the Garden of Eden. Unlike that, this Adam was tempted to distrust God when everything was falling apart. Jesus was about to go to the cross, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the text tells us that he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, that the weight of, of what was about to happen to him, none of us will understand, that the anxiety was so intense, the capillaries under his skin were beginning to burst. And in that moment, listen, Jesus could have called the whole thing off. He didn't have to do it. And I don't know this, but I know in Jesus' humanity, he thought about it. Because this is what he prays. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. In other words, what I'm about to go through, if it's possible, may this be taken from me. And just imagine with me the moment, the humanity of the moment. Jesus is in this cold, gloomy garden. It's dark. He is lonely. His friends keep falling asleep on him. And he is terrified. And the heavens are silent as far as we know, in that moment. I imagine that Jesus was tempted to not trust God. Because after all, Jesus had lived a perfect life, perfect obedience to the Father. He had perfectly loved God with his heart, soul, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. And where was it leading him? To a Roman cross. And in view of that, you don't think Jesus wondered, is this worth it? But in that moment, as the world was caving in, Jesus, he did not distrust God. What did he do? Well, look at his prayer. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. When the world was crashing down on him, Jesus trusted. And what did it cost him? It cost him everything. He was betrayed, arrested, unfairly tried, beaten to a point where he wasn't recognizable, and he hung on a Roman cross for hours. Listen, it's been said that the greatest miracle that Jesus ever pulled off was the resurrection. But the second greatest miracle is that he stayed on the cross. He stayed. Any moment, he could have called a legion of angels and said, get me out of here. And why? Why did he stay? Because he trusted God. With his dying breath, Jesus said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he did that, he absorbed the sin and the death that began when Adam and Eve fell. And so why does that matter for you, you know, for, for, for us today? Well, let's go back to Romans 5, and, and this is what Paul says. He says, death reigned even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now, that word in Greek is the word typos, which we translate type. 
that Adam was a type of what was to come. He was a signpost pointing to Jesus. But then Paul says, but the gift is not like the trespass. So what happened through Jesus, which he calls the gift, is not like what happened through Adam. How is it different? Well, Paul says, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, who's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? (laughs) Paul's saying Adam's inheritance was death, but Jesus's inheritance is life. And that life, which is a gift, he calls it a gift, it overflows to the many. By how? By grace. And he's so captivated by this idea, he just keeps restating it. Look at verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Because of Jesus, it's not just that we're no longer subject to death. It's that we receive grace and righteousness and reign in life. Why? Why? Because Jesus did not fall where Adam fell. Jesus, unlike Adam and unlike all of us, he did not fail. He trusted God and we get that perfect obedience that Jesus lived out by faith. It's a great exchange. It's Jesus got our sin and death that was due us and we, by his grace, we get life and righteousness. Listen, we are all born under Adam. All of us. But by grace, we can be born Again, you can have your lineage changed. Your inheritance can change. Why? It's because of what Jesus has done, and that is the source of our confidence. If I die, if I get hit by a bus, you know, tonight, and, and I'm going to heaven, and Satan is there, and Satan says to God, you cannot let Murphy into heaven. And Satan says, do you have any idea, God, of the, the envy in his heart, do you know the pride and the anger? What will God say? God will say, he is in Christ. And it's the end of the conversation. (laughs) That's our hope. Listen, there is nothing that we have done or will ever do that will separate us from the love of God, but we receive that by faith. And Paul is saying, listen, when you trust Jesus, you are moved out of the line of Adam into the line of Christ. And that, that is our confidence. Listen, listen, this is what Christianity is about. You know, Christianity, it's not about a bunch of people trying to obey to please God. Christianity is about a bunch of people relying on the obedience of Jesus for something that we did not have that we cannot produce. It's so the invitation today for, for you and for me, it's to trust. It's to trust. God says, do you trust me? Listen, you can be in church your whole life 
But your approach to God can be marked by do better, try harder. I mean, maybe you haven't even been to church and you're wondering, is there, is there even a way to get to God? And, and the reality of the gospel is that God came to you. And that now, in light of that, we respond by receiving his love and trusting him. And you can do that today. Listen, you know, if you've never trusted Jesus, you can do that today. And, and, and for all of us who have, for those of you who have trusted Christ, you've walked with Christ, here, here's what this text is inviting you to do. It's the same thing. It's to trust. If you trust Jesus for your salvation, trust him with everything else. Why? Because we still hear that ancient lie of the serpent, don't we? Don't you? That God is holding back. That God does not want your good. That God does not have your best interest at heart. That you can't wait on him. That you have to go get it for yourself. We hear that. I hear that. But is that true? Is God holding things back? No. God did not even hold his own son back. You see, in light of that, we trust him. If you trust him for your salvation, trust him with everything else. Because when you find yourself in the garden of Gethsemane, and you will, and I, we do, and I don't know what that is for you, and maybe you're there right now. When you are there and the heavens feel silent and God, are you there? We can trust him because of Jesus. So today, let's put all of our hope, all of our trust in the second Adam. He's worthy of it. Father, we, we just stand in awe of the gospel, of the, of the, the truth that apart from anything we do, we can be saved and experience relationship with you and eternal life. And so, Lord, would you help all of us today to respond to that by trusting? And for some, it may be that they take a step towards you for the first time or the first time in a long time to say, God, I do, I trust. And for others, it may be we, we come and we sing songs and we, we like to say that we trust you, but there's parts of our lives where we don't, where we don't believe that you're good, that you love us. So God, would you help us today to respond? Lord, as we take communion in a moment, we... We remember the death of Jesus, that it cost. Lord, there wasn't, this was not without a cost. Jesus paid the ultimate price. And so, God, we just reflect on that and we give you thanks. And we pray that even as we do that, that the truth that we're talking about today would be pressed deeper and deeper into our hearts. God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.